as we continue our series on fasting. Let's see, this will work for me. Ezra chapter 8, we'll begin in verse 21. Ah, help me out. Let's see. Now, let me see if it'll come on for me. All right, you're on deck, Mary Jo. <laughs> okay, so this picture is a picture... Um, go back to John Lennon. So this is a picture of John Lennon and uh, Yoko Ono, his wife, um, as you know, I, would, I hope, um, so he was, he was killed, and Joko Ono was um, just devastated by it. And a number of years ago, he, oh no, he, uh, she put out this like full-page uh, ad in a New York Times um, magazine that called for a global day of forgiveness, uh, particularly asking forgiveness of those who have suffered, quote, the insufferable through primarily gun violence and war. Um, Almost sounds like she's asking, you didn't ask forgiveness from people like me who've who've seen loved ones killed in this way. And she made this statement, if we do this, one day we will be able to say that we healed ourselves. And by healing ourselves, we healed the world. That's a pretty optimistic view of humanity. And it's thoroughly humanistic. I think the reality is, from the scriptures, we do not have the capacity to heal ourselves. And in fasting and in prayer, that's our way of coming before the Lord and saying, I can't heal myself, I can't protect myself, I can't make my way in the world without you, thank you very much. There are dangers that I, in the world I need your protection from. And so... Today, uh, I'm going to be preaching a sermon basically on, oh, it's working, yay. Um, I'm preaching a sermon, how many of y'all like a clearly stated message? Here it is. My message today is on the Bible's invitation to seek God and his goodness to us. I'm going to be putting a lot of scriptures up on the screen today, a lot more than I normally do, actually, and so if you ever get lost at any point, my message today is on seeking God and his goodness to us. Remember that, and you should be fine. So... With that said, let me kind of introduce the setting that um, I'll be reading today. Um, Oh, no, it crapped out again. (laughs) Okay, so this is a picture, uh, a representation of what the exile of Israel might have looked like. So Babylon comes, um, and they exile the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C., and it was this this critical moment in the the history of God's people where everything that they had that was their touch point to God's covenant with them was stripped away, right? So the Abrahamic covenant, which was God's promise to have Canaan forever, they lost the land. The Mosaic covenant, which speaks of how sacrifice and atonement works in God's holy place, that was lost because the temple was destroyed. The Davidic monarchy, this, this dynasty that's supposed to last forever, um, and the son of God is to be basically the Davidic king on the throne, that's lost because the, the monarchy and the dynasty is destroyed when Babylon comes. And so it creates this crisis moment for the people of Israel, where all of their covenantal touch points with God seem to be at loss, right? 
And so they are trying to figure things out. And the prophets of Israel respond to this, this crisis moment. And Babylon is defeated by Persia. And the Persian king Cyrus, he gives a decree that the Jews can go back to their homeland. Some do, some don't. And over time, um, they kind of trickle back in different waves. The initial wave comes and they begin reconstruction of the temple and they're trying to rebuild it and they're also trying to kind of rebuild the buildings that have been destroyed and that work stalls out because of persecution from neighboring peoples around who are jealous and don't have Jerusalem's best interests at heart and for decades that stalls out. And then Ezra is this character who kind of comes on the scene and he's a priest who is living in Babylon, and he's, his family's been there a long time since the exile. And this is a representation maybe of Ezra after he makes it back to Jerusalem. And he's trained in the law of Moses, and he has a heart to come back and help the people of God reorganize and have the scriptures taught again and the temple restored and coming, basically just kind of coming back to the Lord in Jerusalem. But... They've got to get there first, and the story that we'll be reading today is about their journey. And they're going on this journey with all of these articles of the temple that had originally been taken by the Babylonians, all this gold, all this silver, basically a, a ton of money, and um, a, a lot of value. And in verse 21, it says this, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, this is Ezra speaking, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since I had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all those who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Picking up in verse 31, they've arrived in Jerusalem, then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes, by the way. Um, last year, last summer, Adeline was not quite five, and I took her to the zoo for a daddy-daughter day. And um, on the way out the door, Jordan uh, opens up her purse and says, all right, here you go. Take this with you. And it's, it's, if you know, if you're a parent with the Zoom membership, it's the coupon book, right? Like hundreds of dollars of value, but it, you know, all the train tickets, all the, all the Dole Whip coupons, and it's, it's critical. So she says, you know, here, here you go. Here's, here's the Zoo, uh, the coupon book. And I reach for it. She goes, oh, don't lose this. I'm not, babe, I'm not going to lose it. All right, don't lose it. Um, okay. So I go, and we have a great day at the zoo, and by the time we're wrapping up, put my hands in my pocket, and it's not there. And I have that panic uh, moment of, this is it for Gabe. <laughs> and so I say, all right, Adeline, we, we're going to retrace our steps. So, so we're like, okay, where was I? Where, I knew I had my keys in one pocket and my phone in, in the other pocket, and I was like, if I put the coupon book with my keys, it's going to get mangled by the keys. So I put it with my phone at the start of the day. And so at some, I never took it out, so I knew it must have fallen out at one point that I checked my phone. So I'm like, okay, when did I check my phone? Well, we're all addicted to our phones. So I checked the entire zoo. 
So we go, you know, like, okay, so we're going, we go to the monkey house, it's not there, we go to the predator house, it's not there, and we're just like retracing all of our steps, and, you know, Adeline's 10 paces behind me, I'm like, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, and um, <laughs> Adeline finally catches up to me, and I go, oh, your mom's going to kill me, and she goes, oh, if mommy kills you, I'm going to have to get a stepdad. I don't want a stepdad. <laughs> we don't often live lives fearing that people will kill us. The people in this story really were afraid for their lives. They were this defenseless group of men, women, and children traveling a vast distance over an open terrain with a ton of money and no armed guard. And Ezra feels that he's in a bind because he's told the king, don't worry, God's got us. I don't, so he feels like, I can't ask for an armed escort. And so he's like, our only recourse is God, which is not a bad place to be, by the way. And so they declare a three-day fast, and they cry out for God's protection. His goodness manifested in his protection toward them. Fasting involves a temporary denial, often of food or other means that we we deny so that we can seek God. And, and Pastor Bart began this series talking about how fasting involves denial and seeking. And that's critical. It's not just denial because denial without seeking is just self-discipline. But denial with seeking is a spiritual discipline. And we can fast different things. Um, we, you could fast uh, entertainment. You could fast media. Um, of course, these days the news is basically entertainment. <laughs> Um, You could do all kinds of fasts in ways that we deny ourselves and have a practice of um, self-denial in our life. For example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, in a context in which it seems that the the people in the church have this view that sex, even within marriage, is kind of dirty, and so the holiest of us don't don't really need it, even in in marriage. And so he says, do not deprive one another of that, that sexual intimacy except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I gotta say, that's a level of spirituality to which I have not yet attained. (laughs) I read this passage and I'm like, that's a thing? Like, really? Um, I've never never proclaimed such a fast in my marriage, but maybe there's some who have, I don't know. Uh, The point is this, is there's all kinds of ways that we can deny ourselves for the express purpose of prayer, of seeking God, of going after him. Um, and you've probably picked up by now that there's different ways that we can fast. Two big fasts, we could say, are corporate fasting, which is done by a community, an entire group of people, and personal fasting, like what Jesus talks about in Matthew 6 and different people do throughout Scripture. This text in Ezra is a corporate fast for all those who are going on this journey are fasting together, particularly seeking God's goodness and his protection. And we've been in a 21-day corporate fast, where we've particularly been focusing on God bringing us into greater freedom in our lives. And I just want to say, I've, heard, I've already heard stories of God moving in people's lives in this church. And it's been super encouraging to me. Um, he's moving, y'all. And uh, come back tonight as we together give voice to the ways that God's moving in our midst for a celebration service tonight. So we, we read that Ezra has told the king, basically, I don't 
I don't need help, right? I, I don't need the armed escort because the hand of God is for good on all those who seek him. And then they arrive in Jerusalem safely. In verse 31, it says, the hand of God was on us. The hand, was, hand of God was on us. Um, this isn't the first time in the book of Ezra that we've encountered the hand of God. Um, chapter 7, we read, this is kind of when Ezra's introduced. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord was on him. Verse 9 and 10. From the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the first month, fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Verse 7, or verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify this house in the Lord uh, that is in, with, of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me a steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And by the good hand of our God, verse 18 of chapter 8, by the good, hand of our, the good hand of our God was on us. So they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mahli, the son of, son of Levi, son of Israel. So basically, you see, God's hand is, is all over all these events that are happening. And Ezra has a companion book, and that companion book is Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah cover similar events and kind of an overlapping time period. They're meant to be read together. And the hand of God is a theme in Nehemiah too. Uh, in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 8 says, And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of God was upon me. And then verse 18, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So in Ezra and Nehemiah, the hand of God is just good. It's only, it's only spoken of that way. And it can mean different things among them. The hand of God means uh, favor with those in authority, even non-believing authority. God's sovereign arranging of events to bring about his purposes among his people. It can mean protection from danger if the hand of God is on you and God's intent to bless and prosper his people. And at the same time, it should be said that while the hand of God is only positive in Ezra and Nehemiah, if we look at the whole of Scripture, we find that the hand of God sometimes means absolute devastation, right? So 1 Samuel 5.11 says, They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there, right? I mean, the hand of God can mean absolute destruction. Job 19.21 says, Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. How many of you know Job's not saying, Oh, God touched me. 
It's awesome, right? He's saying, God touched me, and I wish I had never been born. Right? That's what, that's what you actually encounter when you read the book of Job. And we should be very careful not to speak as though we understand how the hand of God works. Why it is that um, God touches sometimes and it brings destruction, and God touches other times and it brings prosperity. Um, we really need to be careful about that because the truth is this, is that some of the most dangerous spiritual leaders are those who claim to understand how the blessing of God works. Every cult leader, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost hilarious how predictable it is. Every cult leader who's ever lived has claimed to understand how God blesses and how God judges and who God judges and who God blesses. And there is incredible um, spiritual abuse that often follows from that when there is this clear confidence of how the hand of God works, of how the blessing of God works. And some people just limp with spiritual and emotional trauma if you've been under those types of, of leaders and that type of spiritual abuse. Hopefully you haven't been in churches where that's been the case for you. Um, if, and if you have, there, of course, there is healing. But the truth is this, is it's not even just the malicious who are dangerous. I mean, I think the Pharisees are probably an example. Some of the Pharisees may have been malicious. I think a lot of them weren't. I think a lot of them just were self-deceived. And they were very clear about who the goodness of God was meant for and who it was not meant for. And even well-meaning but deceived spiritual leaders um, who claim that God, uh, they know exactly how the hand of God works, his blessing um, and discipline works, they often leave a trail of, of bleeding hearts behind. Um, and I just want to say right now, I do not understand how the hand of God works. Um, why it is uh, that things happen the way they do. I mean, I feel like I can, with some degree of confidence, say, I'll, I know things to be true like the prayer of Psalm 119.68, which says, the Lord is good. It says, you are good and you do good. His nature is good. His actions are good. We can trust this. How it all works, I'm not sure. Why is it that one mother miscarries multiple times and another mother carries all her babies full term? Why some people in this room live much more difficult lives than other people in this room? Um, I don't pretend to understand how human choice and consequence um, and life in a fallen creation and the hand of God all works together. I know this, the Lord is good. And he does good. His nature is good. And his actions are good. Job 3 through 37 basically records a theological debate between Job and his three friends over how the hand of God works. How the justice of God is playing out in Job's life specifically. And how the justice of God plays out in humanity more broadly. And Job comes up and he's like, I'm innocent. And seeks to justify himself before his friends. And, you know, Bildad comes in and he says, Job, you're talking, but it's just wind. There's no substance to your words. Zophar says, Job, you say my doctrine's pure, but it's not. You're just babbling on senselessly. Job strikes back and says, you guys are so wise that when you die, wisdom's going to die. Like, that's y'all. 
you're all liars and worthless comforters and physicians. I wish you just shut up, basically, is what Job says. Eliphaz comes in and says, I'll show you. Listen to me. I'll tell you what my eyes have seen of the Almighty. Finally, Elihu, who's been quiet the whole time because he's the youngest and thinks that only the older ones should speak, he, he can't hold his peace anymore. And in chapter 32, he goes, I too will give my opinion. Like, oh, great, here we go. Um, and then Elihu rebukes Job and then rebukes Job's three friends for unsuccessfully rebuking Job. It's awesome. And he says, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Mm. At various points, each of them in their own way basically claimed to be the most enlightened person in the room. I mean, there are a few people more intolerable than that person, right? Um, have you ever been that guy, though? <laughs> that girl? Um, I'm sorry for the times I've been that guy. I know in part. I see in a mirror dimly. And there must be ways that I'm deceived. Job himself says in verse in chapter 27, 11, I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty, I'm not going to conceal. I will unveil how the hand of God works. It's concealed to you. Let me help you out. Let me teach you how the hand of God works. But when God comes in chapter 38, it says he answers Job out of the whirlwind and says, who is this? who darkens counsel with words without knowledge. It's you, Job. That's who it is. You know, the problem with Job and his friends is that while um, a lot of what they say is generally true about how God treats the righteous and how God treats the wicked, Job's problem is that he seeks to justify himself rather than vindicate God and declare that God's acts must be right even if I don't understand how it all works out. And Job's, the problem with Job's three friends is they think they understand the, the hand of God. They think they can define um, how God works, that God always gives good things to the righteous and always punishes the wicked. Clearly, Job doesn't have good things happening in his life, so he must be a part of the wicked. They see the hand of God to be predictable rather than mysterious as it is. And so at this point, I want to kind of like back up to like a 40,000-foot like, view, if I can, and say something that simply must be said, which is that there's also the great biblical truth that God is just indiscriminately good to all, right? Psalm 145, verse 9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he's made. So we don't want to kind of hear a message like this and think like, oh man, God's just kind of duplicitous. He smashes some. He blesses others. Actually, no. God is actually, a, his goodness is simply all about you and everyone. And so that we hopefully come to a place in our spiritual journey where gratitude just erupts, right? James Wilhoyt said, gratitude includes a general wonder at the goodness of God's universe and quiet, awestruck amazement at the pervasiveness of his grace in our lives. That you and I become the kind of people who are just convinced of the goodness of God. That he's just so good. 
His grace is just so abundant. In any direction I look, there it is. And that gratitude, which is, I, I have come to believe, gratitude is truly a discipline. Sometimes it's the spontaneous song of the heart, and other times it's a discipline, it's a muscle that we work um, as we try to be, by the Holy Spirit, the kind of people who, who noticed goodness, who take note of beauty, who see the pervasiveness of God's grace, and that our response of gratitude is just this acknowledgement that this is exactly the kind of universe that I live in. This is exactly the kind of life I live, one in which you're so good. But guess what? You don't even have to be grateful for God to be good to you. Jesus said, the Lord is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That's how good God is. He's not waiting. Your gratitude doesn't purchase his goodness. He's just indiscriminately good and kind. His mercy is over all that he's made. And so there's this very real sense as we, as we read in A.W. Tozer that the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. The truth is that Asking God to be good, it's like asking the sun to shine. The Lord is good to all. He's just going to be. So when we seek the goodness of God, like they did in this passage, that's really about getting specific, isn't it? I mean, the prayer, God, be good to me, prayer answered. He will be good. Right? Let's get specific. The question is, how can we be specific? God is good. He is so good to you all the time and in a myriad of ways that you don't even perceive. So then let's be specific, too, in our requests. We, I need protection, God. We're going on this long journey, and we are very vulnerable, right? Or whatever it may be. I need freedom, God, as a church. Because there's this corresponding truth that although asking God to be good is a bit like asking the sun to shine. There's also this, this truth that we seek God, and the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, as Ezra told the king, right? So seeking matters too. It's not simply, well, I know you will be. The Bible calls us to seek the hand of God. His good hand is on those who seek him, Scripture tells us. And that's, again, like Pastor Bart began this series. We deny in fasting and we seek. Psalm 34, 8 through 10 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him lack, I have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Tasting and seeing are experiential terms, Right? Taste and see the Lord is good. Taste it. It's, it's his goodness is good. It's really good. See it. Um, you know, sometimes I hear people, and I, I know what they're saying. They're trying to say God's not a vending machine. Which, amen to that, right? God is not a vending machine. But I hear people say sometimes, like, I'm, I seek your face, not your hand, or I, I, I want to seek your goodness, but not the good you do to me. Well, what I always have experienced is, I mean, if you think about it, anytime you've had this conviction that God is good, 
I promise it's because you saw him do something good. That's how you know he's good. <laughs> whether it be in scripture, he did good things there and you saw his goodness, or, be, or whether it be uh, something in the lives of your friends or your family or something in your own life, you've, you've never had this, you have, if your declaration that God is good means you saw him do good. That's how you know he's good. He reveals his goodness through his acts. Lord, you are good and you do good, the psalmist says. So it, it's sure it's wonderful to just simply make a statement of praise that you're good. But the reason we know he's good is because he created the universe and each day said it is good. The reason we know he's good is because he spread his arms out on the cross for you. The reason we know he's good is because he gives good gifts to his children, right? We know he's good because we taste it. We know he's good because we see it, right? So, and again, I don't want to say God's a vending machine, and we don't want to go that direction, that he's only good because of the things he does. But we know he's good because of the things he does. That's how we know he's good. It's not just a theoretical idea. It's our actual experience of God, right? We need to experience the goodness of God, which is why we can seek the goodness of God. Because we're seeking him in that and affirming his nature as we do. Does that make sense? I know I got a little preachy there for a second. Um, to seek his face is to experience his hand. Because God doesn't just say, here I am, and leave you destitute and broken and in bondage. That's not the kind of God he is. He says, here I am, I'm bringing you out of bondage. I'm bringing you out of destitution. I'm bringing you into healing. He, know, he, he doesn't know any otherwise, because that's who he is. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 16, on this, again, this message of seeking, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, uh, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head. Again, this is about personal fasting, right? In corporate fasting, we all know we're fasting. Uh, wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that God rewards giving in secret, prayer in secret, fasting in secret, done not for show, but for the Lord. From my conversations with people, um, as a pastor and from my own struggles and challenges in my personal devotional life, um, I think some of the greatest challenges in our day to seeking God is hurry and distraction. And of course, a lot's being written about this right now in a lot of the literature. It's just, that's where we are. We're just, a lot of us want to see God, don't we? You do. I'm not going to question your heart. You probably want to see God. We're just we're just so stinking hurried and, dist and distracted, many of us. Um, Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 says, Look carefully then how you ought to walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Making the best use of our time, because the days are evil. You know, we, we buy the latest upgrade simply because we can, or because it's now available. And for no other reasons than that. We can, and it's available, right? Um, when was the last time you paused before making, making a purchase and asked yourself questions like, 
should I allow this technology in my life or my home? And I like that, that word allow. I mean, you have agency. You're the gatekeeper, right? Should I allow this? I have the power to not even to not give this access to my life or my home. Should I allow this in my life? And maybe the answer is sure, right? But pause and ask the question before we just get the next thing. Or will I be able to practice self-control if I purchase this or download this app or game or join this platform or subscribe to this podcast? How likely is it that this product will keep me from being present to my spouse, my children, my neighbor, my God? I mean, this is part of what it means to apply Ephesians 5, 15, and 16 in the digital age. So that we become the kind of people who ask questions like, can I be discerning in my engagement with technology? Um, I want to say <laughs> my heart is not to go on some anti-technology tirade. Um, I'm not telling you to delete anything or unsubscribe from anything. And if you feel like you need to, that's between you and the Lord or maybe conversations with those in your household. Um, I, I've determined I will not be the anti-technology preacher. Like, I'm not going to be that guy. Um, but I'm happy to be the discernment with technology preacher. I'd, I'd take that label, um, that we practice discernment. Should I allow this? Um, is this going to help me make the best use of my time and have a living revelation of my place in God's world and the purposes he has for me? Um, you know, I'm trying to be honest with myself, and it's been kind of rough <laughs> uh, seeing the ways in which my uh, my decisions are shaped much more by American consumerism than by godly wisdom. And I want my choices to be shaped the other way, more by godly wisdom than by American consumer habits. It's an invitation. It's, this is not legalism. This is not um, guilt, guilting. This is an invitation to practice discernment with the Lord. The biblical word for wisdom in the Old Testament is chakmah, which means skillful living. And wisdom can be applied to an array of settings. So wisdom before the king comes with a certain due honor that is given to the king. Wisdom in our, our business dealings has certain kinds of integrity in the way we conduct ourselves. Wisdom in our approach before the Lord means the fear of the Lord. So that wisdom means to live well in whatever area, to live skillfully in that area. Um, Psalm 53 verse 2 says, God looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who live skillfully, who seek after God. That we have some sense of living revelation, understanding of our time, and, and this is as true as it was in, in uh, Psalm 53 as it is now, that God's looking down, looking down on you, on me, do they understand? Are they seeking me? You know, I think the temptation when you hear a sermon like this one, a sermon on seeking God, is to, the temptation is to see seeking God is just another thing I've got to add to my really busy schedule. Um, 
and that's, that's kind of how it begins to feel. And if you're at that point in the sermon, I, I want to speak to that. I, I, I want to speak to that. Um, the hurry can be all-consuming, can't it, in life? I think sometimes we have this like, life where it's like, okay, drop off the kids. Got to do that. Uh, get groceries. Got to do that. Uh, finish work project. Okay. Catch up on laundry. Got it. Uh, oh, yeah. Seek God. Um, mow yard. So that, like, if it's almost like we get this mindset that seeking God falls somewhere in between mowing the yard and catching up on laundry, right? Um, I would encourage you to think about it more like this. Let me try to illustrate, I think, how the Bible invites us to seek God and his goodness to us. Um, you guys, if you, maybe you've started already or you're about to, we're entering into um, tax season and you'll be filing your taxes. And if you have them, you'll be listing your dependents in your household. Prayer and fasting is our way of raising our eyes to heaven and listing ourselves as dependents. And intercessory prayer and fasting is our act of raising our eyes to heaven and listing others as dependents. As we move out of this 21-day season of corporate prayer and fasting, um, I hope that we have something of that mindset, that that's what this is about, is that humbling of ourselves before the Lord. Um, that we would see it more like that, not as, um, we wouldn't see prayer and fasting as something else I've got to somehow fit into my busy schedule, but they would rather, it would instead be a way of acknowledging your limitation. We're not great at that, are we? That um, We would be people who acknowledge our limitation and ask to see the gracious work of God in our lives and humble ourselves before him in that way. Ezra said, then I, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. Fasting necessarily through scripture involves humbling ourselves before the Lord and saying, I need you. Guys, you need to be protected. You need to be cared for. I know as Americans, that almost is offensive, isn't it? In, in the words of Ezra and Nehemiah, you need the hand of God on your life. Maybe it'd do you good, even just in this moment, in the stillness of your heart, to say, I need your hand on my life. I do, God. I need your hand on my life. I read an Old Testament scholar this last week who made the observation that after the exile, fasting became a lot more common. That fasting happened before the exile, but is mostly connected to special occasions within the religious calendar of Israel, and that after the exile, it becomes more prevalent. Why? I don't know for sure, but if I had to guess, I'd say there's something about feeling our own powerlessness that opens us up to the power of God. The exiles felt powerless, and so fasting became more common. Um, Pastor John Tyson tells this story about a time when there's a girl in his church who uh, was dating a guy, an unbeliever, and the unbeliever reached out to him asking for a meeting with him. And so he's like, sure. And so they get together, and this guy says, again, the unbeliever says, uh, I think she's guilty of idolatry. What? Yeah. She treats me as her God, and I can't be her God. And as her pastor, I need you to tell her that. 
Fasting, as we saw in Ezra, involves humbling ourselves before God, expressing our dependence on him and to him. And some of us, um, our dependence on people in our lives, it borders on idolatry. In some cases, it's simply idolatrous. To the codependent in this room, that if you're honest, you find your value in being needed by others. Who am I if my adult child doesn't need me? Who am I if my spouse doesn't believe that I complete them? Who am I if others' lives don't fall apart without my help? To the codependent in this room, you cannot be their God. To the self-sufficient in this room, humble yourself before the all-sufficient God. I invite the worship team to come forward. You know, you may be here today and you're hearing this sermon on seeking the goodness of God and you're somewhere like where Job is in Job 7-7. My eye will never see good again. That's how you feel. And that's a place of very real depression that the Bible gives voice to, doesn't it? Um, You may be in a place where you're saying, I don't have any hope or expectation that I'll see good. Again, those days are gone. Those days are behind me now. Um, and you may be there. I want to I be sensitive to that. Um, and this may feel like a, like a banging drum, the sermon on seeking the goodness of God, because you feel depleted and you feel like you've lost faith in that area. I want to encourage you, if you have even a mustard seed of faith, Offer that to the Lord in this moment. The author of Hebrews wrote that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And you may be here today or you may be watching online and you're thinking, I felt like I sought God. I felt like I sought God and he didn't reward me. And, you know, maybe he did. And just in ways that you didn't ask for or expect, um, but even so, it's not a formula, and I'm not going to make the mistake of Job by claiming to understand how the hand of God works perfectly. If I did, God would say the same thing to me. Who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? But maybe you're here today, and that, that, that word that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, you feel like you've just kind of, you're struggling to believe it, and so you've just given up trying. God will still be good to you. You're still the recipient of his goodness. The Lord is good to all. He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. His mercy is over all that he's made. But the pursuit is worth it. The Lord gives grace to the humble, strength to the week let's stand as we go back into worship Lord you are good and you do good can we just say that together Lord you are good and you do good we love you God open our eyes to who you are